Hello, and welcome back to Eye to Eye, the Digital Renaissance podcast. I am Percy Hornack, your host, and I am going to kick us off with a couple of announcements about the coming week in the Digital Renaissance Project. First of all, you can sign up for the Digital Renaissance Project at digitalrenaissanceproject.com. Now for a few highlights for the week to come within the project. First of all, join us on Wednesday, June 17th from 3 to 5 p.m. for a unique opportunity to participate in a workshop with Michael John Garces and Bruce Lemon from Cornerstone Theatre Company. This workshop is designed to share tools for building authentic relationships within and between communities while creating art. Expect to take away strategies for turning your stories into art, no matter your artistic experience. This workshop is open to participants of the Digital Renaissance Project, as well as anyone outside the project who is interested in attending. There is a link to RSVP in the show notes of this episode. This is a really, really exciting opportunity, and we are so thrilled to be able to share this with our community. You can also join us on Thursday, June 18th from 3.30 to 5 p.m. for further exploration of The City of Misfit Tales, an exploration of Dadaist art style, where artists influenced by the madness of the world around them used anything they had at hand to express themselves, resulting in work that is at times irrational or based on free association and collages of ideas. This workshop in the Digital Renaissance Project is a creation lab for young artists where they are encouraged to pursue any thought, any idea, any story, using whatever tools they need to realize their creation. This project will spark many one-on-one mentorships between youth artists and adult artists, allowing them to work closely eye-to-eye, which is what Andy's is all about. This will take place over the entire summer and will benefit from as many minds as possible collaborating together to make art, so please jump in if you can. This one is available only to participants of the Digital Renaissance Project, but I highly encourage you to go ahead and sign up and enroll if you have not already. So, moving on to the focus of this week's episode, I sat down virtually with Matt Cahoon, Artistic Director of Theatre Kapow in New Hampshire and former Andy's Kid, to talk about his career and what Andy's taught him that he has brought into the rest of his life. Let's cut over to that. Matt, could you tell us about yourself? I... I am a former Andes kid, as you know. I grew up in New Ipswich, New Hampshire, and went to school in Jaffrey. And then when I, when I went off to college, I, I came here to, to Manchester, where I live now, and went to St. Anselm College, and then moved after that out to Ohio, where my wife was uh, at graduate school at Ohio State. Then moved to Massachusetts for a year where I was the assistant technical director at a theater in New Bedford and then was offered a job as the technical director at the Palace Theater in Manchester, which is the state's kind of largest professional theater. And then in um, 2004, I left that job and took a job as the director of cultural programming at Pinkerton Academy. Pinkerton is a, an independent high school here in New Hampshire with just under 3,300 students. It's the largest high school in the state. And my job now is to manage the Stockbridge Theater, which is our performing arts center on campus, to teach the theater classes and to organize cultural programming initiatives across our campus, which basically consists of bringing artists onto campus to work with our students in a kind of parallel to what Andy's does. And Theater Kapow, yes, is part of what I do. In 2008, my wife and I, in two friends from college founded Theater Kapow, which is um, an ensemble-based theater company that does a number of different projects throughout the year, from readings to devised work to classical pieces, and um, and we're entering our 13th season. For our audience, could you explain what an ensemble-based company is and how it's different from any other kind of theater company? 
Sure. Uh, we have an ensemble of actors who work with the company regularly. They are their company members who basically commit their um, their work to art to this company. Um, they get a full buy-in in terms of show selection, training techniques, all really top to bottom. The, the ensemble runs the company. So we do everything from lighting design to designing the program, to selling the tickets, to performing in the plays. And that ensemble of performers, well, performers, directors, designers, are the people from whom we draw our casts, crews, and creative teams for our productions. Oftentimes we have to go outside of that group just because it's not a very large group and we'll add some people in. And very occasionally we'll actually add members to the company. And that the company itself is one that's based in a, a real priority is placed on training. And we train together in a, a variety of different methods. We do, right now we're doing weekly trainings. Prior to COVID, we were doing monthly training. So it's actually something that's increased. And, and then training is a part of all of our performance processes too. So prior to really getting into rehearsal, as you, as people might imagine it, there's actually a period of time during which we train together to, to create whatever piece it is that we're creating. So I know you said you were an Andes kid. How long did you attend Andes? I was at Andes for seven summers from 1985 to 1992. And yeah, so I was there for, I was there for, from the time that I was eight until I was 15. Do you have a favorite memory from your time at Andes? I do. It's so funny because most of my memories uh, of my times at Andes are not associated with being on stage or, or audiences or anything. I, I very frequently think about like, you know, eating my yogurt and smart food on the front steps of Andy's while people are playing Frisbee in the front lawn. Those are the types of memories from Andy's that I really remember. One of my favorite memories of Andy's, again, not associated with necessarily with being on stage, was uh, we, we were doing a touring production of Babar, the Elephant. And uh, we went into a town hall. I think it was in Francistown, but I don't want to speak ill of Francistonians. So, and we were told like, this is where you're going to perform. But there were all these tables and chairs and we, the company of Babar actually had to move all the tables and chairs, sweep, make room for our, where our show was going to take place, set up audience seating, uh, and then put on the show. And, and in so many ways, when I think back to that moment, now as a producer of theater, it, it was remarkably formative because it was, you know, that it's a, a bit of a metaphor for what I have to do now in terms of make this space ready, then put on the show, you know, make mm -hmm. the audience comfortable. Um, so those are the things I think of when I think about memories of Andes, um, other than, of course, the, a lot of people that I was really um, blessed to have worked with there. Actually, it segues really well into my next question, which is, um, what have you, what did you learn at Andes that you think you've brought into your the rest of your life and your career post Andes? I think that, and I I mentioned this in my workshop the other day with the Andes um, students that I was working with, which was I think that Andes students are so well prepared for the reality of the theater industry, in a way that other um, youth theater companies don't prepare their students. And that's because in reality in the industry, a lot of original work is happening. 
people are required to be more than just actors or stage managers. They're often required to hold many different uh, or, or wear many different hats. And, and so many of those virtues are really vital to what Andy's is all about. So even when I was there and we were doing titles that people have probably heard of, they were still original work, right? People were adapting, you know, known children's stories into uh, original plays. My first play at Andy's was Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. And again, it became a, I think a Disney movie even. It became like a, a pretty big deal. But when we were doing it, it was a little play that somebody had read the storybook and made into a play. That is so much more consistent with, I think, the reality of the industry than is, you know, doing a bunch of Broadway revival type musicals, which you probably realize is what a lot of youth theater companies are all about, right? So yeah. um, I think that Andy's is creating theater artists. And I think that a lot of other companies, I'm not speaking ill of them, some of them do great work, but a lot of other companies are maybe not doing as good a job preparing their students for the reality of the industry. Did you know that you wanted to go into theater professionally before you started Andy's or was that a dream that was kind of sparked while you were there? Well, I was eight when I started, well, so sure. I, certainly, <laughs> I certainly didn't think I wanted to. I actually did an Andy's um, back in the day, and I don't know if they still do this, but they used to do workshops. So before you were eight, you could do an Andy's show, but it wasn't at the Playhouse. They came out to New Ipswich and they did a workshop in the elementary school. And so I did The Devil and Daniel Webster as like a six or seven year old. And I certainly didn't know I wanted to do theater, but all of my family... There are going to be some exceptions because I have six brothers and sisters, but many of us were Andy's kids. Uh, I think all five of, of the first five of us were Andy's kids. So my parents, I was, I'm still super fortunate that my parents are who they are, but they, they were really supportive of us getting involved in Andy's very early on. Um, my brother used to ride his bike from New Ipswich to go to Andy's. Uh, which is a pretty decent bike ride when you're 10. Um, you know, so I didn't know. What's weird is, Percy, what's weird is that when I, when I went to high school and I encountered high school theater, it wasn't what I was in love with as an Andy's kid. And so I stopped doing theater. I didn't do it in high school at all because they were doing up the down staircase and they were doing they were doing musicals and things that just didn't really interest me. So I stopped doing theater at all until I got to college and then I got back into theater and I was able to do student directed work and original pieces and it started to feel again more like uh, what I had been doing at Andy's, which is weird that like nine year old me had better artistic <laughs> outlets than did 16 year old me. but. It was then in college, I think, that I was pretty sure that theater was what I was going to be able to make a living doing. And there's a moment, I think, that most theater artists hit where it's not something you want to do, it's something you need to do. Um, it's, it's like soul nourishing, and you know that you just can't not make theater. And that certainly happened for me in college. But all of that was just tapping back into my days in Wilton and, and my time at Andy's. Yeah, can definitely confirm you have that moment of, I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, right. Even if it's a little crazy to, to do this thing. It's a lot crazy sometimes, yeah. Ooh, yep. So 
shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that I really responded to when I was looking through Theater Kapow's website was your commitment to to process and your commitment um, to to training. Um, could you speak a little bit more about why process is important to you specifically as an artist? Because I think a lot of the way that we talk about theater is so product oriented. Um, sure. It's so much about this is the play that we did. Here's the vid here's the pictures of the production as opposed to here's how we got there. Yeah. Um... So the interesting thing, the really wonderful thing about working with an ensemble of, of people is that they all bring their own perspectives, viewpoints to, to the, the work. And so I think the greatest thing about Theater Kapow is that we all train in different methods, but we very often, especially if we have moments where we can actually talk about work, uh, we very often find that there's a lot of intersection in the various training methodologies. So um, my wife, Carrie, has trained pretty extensively with City Company, which is in the viewpoints. And she's also trained kind of the other half of her brain with um, the Atlantic Theater Company in, in a method called the practical aesthetics. So she's taking this kind of movement-based training and this very analytical uh, actor process training and throwing them together. And that's her own process. My, my board president is a Chekhov, a Michael Chekhov actor, who trains pretty much exclusively in the Chekhov method. And so that's his process as an actor. And I direct most of the shows and my, I have a jumble, but I, you know, I trained, I trained quite a bit with a company in Massachusetts called Double Edge. And Double Edge is a Grotowski-based company that is very much into physical theater and the exploration of, of like a psychological improv technique, which is a big way of saying they, they move a lot and they find ways to express themselves through the body. So I did that training and that training really changed our company pretty drastically. As soon as I came back from working with Double Edge, we went from doing old parlor shows, which I love, old parlor shows of Ibsen and Strindberg, and we pushed into uh, more movement-based work, more process-oriented work, and, and that's where the training really became integral to our, to our process. Uh, we, like I said, we train as a company fairly regularly. We also hold these open trainings that anybody can come into and just train with the company. Um, we are constantly finding ways to push the boundaries of our comfort. And so we were also always bringing in guest artists to lead trainings and then taking one little, you know, one little tidbit from one person and one little tidbit from one person. And I don't know if eventually there'll be any kind of codifying uh, theater kapow methodology, probably not because there's too many Mm -hmm. um, you know, too, kind of too many pots on the stove. Uh, and I should mention, because I just taught a workshop in it, is that last summer I trained, I trained with the Tectonic Theater Project in New York on, uh, and their method, which is called moment work. And I was actually trained to teach that, that method. So that, that's become a pretty major part of, of what I do as a, not only as a theater artist, but as somebody who teaches, um, students as well. Mm -hmm. So in terms of being a, a, an artist who wears a lot of hats, something that I know that I have trouble with at the company that I work with is balancing being an administrator and being an artist. Could you speak to what that experience is, given that I assume you do a little bit of both? Yeah. Uh, yes. 
uh, quite a bit of both. Um, I think that this is one of those things, and this goes back to the, this is what I need to do versus this is what I want to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if this is what you need to do, then you realize that somebody needs to paint the set and you realize that somebody needs to hang the posters and that somebody needs to whatever, sell the tickets, you know, all of those things. And yes, somebody needs to perform and somebody needs to do the lighting design. When you're a small company, and certainly when you're starting out as a small company, it becomes really important that you have people who can do a lot of different things because it's just the economics don't work. We can't afford to hire a lighting designer, scenic designer, sound designer, projection designer, painters, like we don't have that benefit. So we've all had to pick up some skills along the way. And I would say one of the biggest skills that we've all had to develop to some extent is this administrative piece. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a friend who teaches visual art at a college and on the first day of his painting course, he tells the students that they have to write a grant and they all (laughs) freak out because they are painters and they don't want to write. And he says, at some point, you're going to need to make an argument that people should pay you for your work. And so he teaches them right away in the Mm -hmm. first moment of their painting class that they better know how to write grants. And so we've all had to figure that out. We're going to write grants. We had to go through the process of becoming a nonprofit organization. We had to, you know, do fundraising, marketing, all of those things that that are just necessary to being a theater company. And those things that, you know, so much of who you are as a company is in the branding of your public face. And it, mm-hmm. uh, you'd love to just stand on the quality of your work alone, but that's not really the way it works, right? People aren't going to go see your work without you enticing them in some way, without you marketing the piece in a way that they want to come see it, without you getting the funding necessary to make the piece to begin with. So that the process of being an administrator and the process of being an artist, I think are really, really linked because Mm -hmm. you, you know, it's one thing to stand in a studio and to deliver a monologue, but without the audience there, without the costumes in place, without the lights, it's, it's not, I'm not sure what you're doing, right? You're not necessarily creating theater in that moment. So that's a long way of saying, I think it's all super (laughs) important. And I think that if you need to do this, then you better know how to do several different things. That's a, that's a very, very good answer because um, I don't have a good answer to that for myself. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, it needs, to, it needs to happen. But So in your sort of professional life, what is some of the, the work that you're most proud of or that you feel is most like representative of your aesthetic or practice as an artist? There's a couple, you know, it's super funny because the, the shows that I'm most proud of tend to be the ones that didn't sell the best, which is funny given that conversation we just had. Uh-huh. But um, I, I did, I guess I'll talk about two. One was not, one was uh, a device piece and one was not. So talking about the one that was not, um, we did a piece called uh, Living in Exile, which is a play by John Lipsky. Um, and this play is a retelling of Homer's Iliad. And um, it has two actors who play all of the roles in the Iliad. Mm -hmm. Um, But the brilliant thing about the play is that it was written in part in response to 9-11. It was written written kind of in the wake of 9-11. And he was talking about 
the culture and the impact that violence has on a culture. And, and he sets the entire play in a living room. Mm-hmm. So the Iliad, which we think of as chariots and huge battle scenes, suddenly as a performer and as a company, we had to figure out how do we, how do we show the chariot race? How do we show um, Achilles dragging the body of Hester around the city of Troy in, a, in somebody's living room, right? And so I always think about that play as one of our high points as a company because we, there were so many there were so many puzzles to solve. And ultimately, as a theater maker, one of my favorite things is having to solve puzzles. So that's one. The other one I'll mention was a devised piece that we created called Raining Aluminum. And I'll, I'll try to keep this story super short, but Raining Aluminum was a play that took two moments in history and wound them together. In 1917, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, there was a massive explosion on a, on a munitions ship in the harbor, and it killed 1,900 people. And it was, at the time that it happened, it was the largest man-made explosion ever in the history of man in 1917. It was not surpassed in terms of man-made explosions until the, the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. So it was a wow. big explosion. Yeah. Um, and it blew out like all of the windows in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It uh, like I said, it killed a number of people. It blinded a number of people. It was this massive, massive event. And the the response to that event is what we explored in the piece, which was um, literally a, a day or two days after this explosion, uh, a train was sent from Boston, Massachusetts, uh, with all of these supplies and doctors and munitions uh, and all these um, things that needed to go up and help the people uh, in Halifax. And... As a result, every year, the, the people of Halifax still, um, to this day, send a Christmas tree that gets set in Boston Common and lit. So there's this great big Boston Common Christmas tree, and that's actually a gift from the people of Halifax as a way of thanking them for their support in the aftermath of this terrible tragedy. Mm-hmm. We took that tragedy and we created um, a parallel storyline, which was that after 9-11, the, the airspace of the United States was closed. And many people were rerouted to the, the Atlantic provinces of Canada. There's a play called, what is this play called? Come, Come From, from Away. away. Right? So we actually created this piece before Come From Away, but I don't tell people that because it's just obnoxious <laughs> to say. Um, but so, so we, we created that story. So um, they landed 27 planes in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia at the, air, at the airport in Halifax. A ton of people showed up in town. They had to be fed and taken care of. And so we took those two storylines and we kind of twisted them together and made it a story about this kind of international dialogue of gratitude that went back and forth between these two countries at two very distinct moments in their histories and two very tragic moments in their histories. But we didn't emphasize the tragedy as much as we emphasized the, the gratitude. That's beautiful. That piece took us literally years to create. It premiered in in Boston, um, and then, uh, well, it kind of it workshopped in Boston, was created in Boston, and then premiered in New Hampshire. And I'm still really proud of of because it it was just an idea, and it was nice that it to see that come to fruition. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. So I know that making theater in this time is is very different. Could you speak a little bit to how your experience of theater in 
pandemic times has been, and especially your experience maybe with the Digital Renaissance Project uh, and the workshop you led this week? Yeah. Well, you know, initially there was this enormous boom of resources that came out, right, where you could suddenly stream anything you wanted to for free and um, you could see really amazing work by really amazing artists and it was everywhere and it was it actually became a little overwhelming to me because I feel like on March 13th I left school and we thought originally that we would be going back like in a week or two weeks we had we were in we were gonna load in our set for our school musical Saturday the 14th so we closed on the 13th and the musical still hasn't performed so in that initial moment I was really, I think, a lot, like a lot of us, I was really reeling. Like, I didn't want to create theater. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to put the world on pause, and I wanted to wait until it all started back up again. Mm -hmm. And as it got longer, and then eventually, as things became clear that we were not going to be going back to school, that, you know, Theater Kapow had a show scheduled at the end of April that we had to cancel. We had an original piece scheduled to be... Um, performed next weekend here at the end of June that we had to postpone. So as it became clear to me that those things weren't going to happen, it, it was also, it also became really important that we find different outlets for creating work. Mm -hmm. And so for, for Theater Kapow, that was increasing the number of trainings we do. We do now these open trainings every Saturday morning via Zoom. And while I don't love the format of Zoom, what it has done is it has allowed many people who've worked or trained with us in the past to come back into the fold. So we have an artist who joins us every Saturday morning from London. Uh, we have somebody from LA who joins us every Saturday morning. And there's, there's no longer any sense of geographic barrier to accessing um, the training, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I did is uh, we were working on a piece with New Hampshire Dance Collaborative that's an original piece that was, it's, I don't know where it stands right now, honestly, but it was supposed to premiere in Manchester in, on November 1st. Um, and it was a piece that was going to involve a lot of choreography, a lot of interview style work, and, and then be, you know, pulled together and performed as a, as a truly collaborative dance theater piece uh, in November. And that all got put on hold. We were supposed to audition that piece on um, the 15th, so the Sunday, the 15th of March were our auditions and we didn't hold them. Mm -hmm. Instead, the choreographer and I have been working with two dancers and putting prompts on them uh, and then filming it. And so that, that process of filming that short piece of that work is, is just about done. We've seen the first edits on it. So that, that feels to me like we created some, that's kind of the first like theater kapow creation during this time and that feels really really super important and then of course um and and your most important part of this question is the is the digital renaissance project jared and i are friends we we encounter each other in all different ways across <laughs> many different friends friend groups but you know way several weeks ago now he he floated this idea to me that he was going to do this digital renaissance project i'm not even sure that's what he called it at that point and it i was fascinated by it mostly because if there's an artist that can create in this space it's jared 
right? That he yeah. is so native to this world that where so many people were struggling to find their feet, I knew that he would find his feet really quickly and really well. I then took part in like the process of going through these orientations and just every step of the way was absolutely blown away by the infrastructure that the Andes had built under this project, the, the buy-in from some incredibly talented and exciting artists. And I think maybe even most importantly, the enthusiasm with which the students were wanting to devour this work. And so, yeah, this past Wednesday, I taught my first workshop as part of the Digital Renaissance Project. And we did two hours of moment work, um, which is like, it's like reading War and Peace over our lunchtime. <laughs> like it's not nearly enough time, right? But, mm-hmm. um, but I was very touched by the generosity of spirit of those young artists, um, the enthusiasm, again, with which they attacked the work, and really happy with how the with the zoom world format and how it worked to make some really dynamic pieces in that short time we had together so to sort of close this out i wondered if you had any advice for young artists uh that you would like to to pass on sure um i think the biggest thing is well there's there's maybe two one is this idea of finding your tribe which i think is really important mm-hmm. um your tribe is going to accept you for who you are, no matter what you look like or sound like or believe uh, or who you love or whatever. Um, so you need to find that tribe of people that's going to embrace you, that's going to um, support you, nurture you, and probably most importantly, that's going to challenge you, that's going to make you do better work. So that's number one, find that group of people. Don't surround yourself with people who just love you because that's not, I mean, you want them to love you. (laughs) Don't just surround yourself with people who say yes to you all the time. Surround yourself to people who who want to push you. So I think that's number one. Um, Number two is um, to make your own work. I really think that's super important that, and that's that's what we talked about at the beginning in terms of the ethos of Andy's Summer Playhouse. Um, make your own work. Don't, you know, don't step in somebody else's footprints necessarily, but go ahead. Um, I have a crazy idea for a a play. Um, Get some friends together, make it happen. I think that's, uh, you know, it's funny because I did a podcast for directors the other day um, and they asked, somebody asked like, what would you say to a young director? And I was like, make your own work, you know, like Mm -hmm. make your own work is such an important thing. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's an early career director or if it's a nine-year-old, like go, like make your work. If that's drawing, if that's sculpture, if that's, I'm going to stack some rocks on top of each other, do whatever you need to do to, to find that creative outlet. And I had a third thing, but I forgot it. So it's okay. Those two were very, very good. So I feel like I'll forgive <laughs> you for that third one. Thank you so much, Matt, for taking the time to, to speak with me today. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Eye to Eye, the Digital Renaissance Podcast. Sign up for the Digital Renaissance Project at digitalrenaissanceproject.com and follow us on social media at Digital Renaissance Project. Join us next week for more from the Digital Renaissance Project and more Andy's magic.